Please open your Bibles to Matthew 28. I do notice some visitors here. If I have not met you, please allow me the pleasure of being able to meet you after service this morning. Matthew 28. As we continue our detour from the Gospel of John, if you have not been here for that long, we've been in the Gospel of John. We stopped around chapter 6. We took a detour down the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We began there, we looked at that. Several weeks in Romans 1, as we walked through it, considered the depravity of man and a spiritual downgrade of a society. And we concluded that the wrath of God remains on sinners who are without Jesus Christ. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what hopefully was shored up in our thinking as we studied. Then we spent some time in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, as Paul urged us, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And we navigated through that. We looked at that. We saw that what Paul says in Romans 12 is couched in the mercies of God. We are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, not to be conformed to this age, instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We studied the initial transformation, which is regeneration, And then the ongoing transformation, which is sanctification. When someone is converted, we rejoice with them as we should. They were under God's wrath because of their sin and their continual rejection of Jesus Christ. If left to their sin and in their sin, when they die, they would spend eternity in misery, torment, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when God saves a soul, the person is no longer dead in sin, but alive to God, forgiven of their sin, transformed. It becomes obvious, specifically to the person who has been converted, of course, and then people around them, sometimes instantaneously, and sometimes over time. The person is different. The person is changed. It is obvious. It is observable. One specific way this heart change is fully noticeable is in water baptism, which is an outward expression of an inward reality, something that has taken place in a person's life, a transformation by God. God has always had a people as we study redemptive history. He's always provided the way in which we are to worship Him. Throughout redemptive history, God has laid out the means by which He was to be worshipped by man. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, and then the temple. There were animal sacrifices, priests, certain garments, altars, and incense. Very detailed, very descriptive, and we learned some of this as we studied uh, in the Old Testament, as we have gone in, in Sunday school in last season, 
As we're on a break now in Sunday school, we'll go back and we'll be studying biblical theology. We'll be studying more of redemptive history in the Old Testament. So we have, um, in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle and a temple. And now in the New Testament, New Covenant, we have a New Testament church. And the believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament, again, sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And then Jesus, the once for all sacrifice. And we, as believers, are to, are to offer up ourselves a living sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, there were priests. And then we see that Jesus is our high priest. And we, as Christians, are a kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, there was circumcision under the Old Covenant. And in the New Testament, we read about circumcision of the heart, a circumcision without hands. And then we have water baptism in the new covenant, an outward expression of an inward reality. Now, a steady study, a careful study of this, which we're not going to do this morning as far as circumcision and and covenant theology, which is an important study, but would take an amount of time to really uh, hammer it down and to really understand it. But we'll, there are parallels between the two, circumcision and baptism, but there are vast differences. We must ask, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible tell us we are to do? There are two ordinances of the New Testament church. And we understand that most of us believe that, most of us heard that, most of us participate in that. Christ ordained them for the church, until he returns. Two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, or communion, we, we, we will be partaking in after uh, the, the sermon this morning. But at the Passover, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in baptism, Jesus instituted in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28. Our uh, confession, the London Baptist Confession, uh, says this. I'll be quoting from it a few times because it's like a brief systematic theology. It helps us to, uh, points us to different scriptures to where we can uh, understand certain uh, doctrines better. It says this in chapter 28, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. They are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, and are to be continued in his church to the end of the age. Our text this morning, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Father, again, I ask for your prayer that you would help me, O Lord. Give me unction from on high, O God. Help me to be careful with your text. Help me to be accurate with your word this morning for the glory of Christ. Amen. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All, glory, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So this is a reminder who has all authority on heaven and earth is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus pronounces the Great Commission after his resurrection, before his ascension, he institutes baptism. First, I want to uh, remind us of what baptism is not and what baptism does not do. Water baptism saves no person, no way, no how, ever. Does not save anyone. Secondly, water baptism is not necessary nor mandatory for salvation. The thief on the cross is a perfect example of that, and you can read about that in Luke 23:43. Remember, there's two thieves on the cross. One turned to Jesus. Jesus said, assuredly, you will see me today in paradise. The thief, of course, was not water baptized. And then we see Simon in the book of Acts, who was baptized, but proved to be one who turned away from the Lord. Thirdly, and uh, this is important for us to understand and to uh, unpack it significantly from a different position would take a, a lot of time as well. And I would encourage you to, to read uh, a few books for references. I'll just mention them to, to you after I make my point. Baptism is not for unbelieving children, nor infants. The scripture nowhere, anywhere, says to baptize a baby with hopes of them one day becoming a disciple. Now, we don't want to take our position necessarily and argue from silence. We want to see what does the Bible teach us. And that's where we're going to go this morning. But a few books that may be beneficial to you in this study, A Believer's Baptism by Tom Schreiner and um, another gentleman, I don't have his first name here, last name is Wright, uh, and then Biblical Baptism by Sam Waldron, and then Baptism of Disciples Alone by Fred Malone, who's a former Presbyterian pastor, and then The Fatal Flaw of Theology Behind Infant Baptism by Jeff Johnson. I have not read that yet, I've just glanced through it. Um, so I can't say I've read it all entirely through. <clears throat> but let me say this as well, too, that we love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ. We love our Presbyterian ministers who preach the word, who stand uh, solidly on the word of God. Most uh, commentaries I read are Presbyterian men. Uh, there's two men still living that are Presbyterians, that are preachers that I would listen to and I would yield my pulpit to, or this pulpit to, not my pulpit, the pulpit I'm standing behind, in a heartbeat. But there's a difference in what we believe as Baptists and what Presbyterians believe as far as baptism is concerned. And my purpose here is to not try to explain the ways of a what's known as a paedo-baptist position, but the purpose is to show you from the Word of God that the baptism of believers is taught and is necessary for believers. It's not a suggestion in the New Testament. 
It's not an encouragement in the New Testament. Baptism is a command that we find that is to be followed. It's right here in the Great Commission. So all authority has been given to Christ on heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And in these few verses here, we could spend a, a series of sermons on everything here. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go on the mission field and make disciples. Of all nations, we could, we could look at that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We could do a study on the Trinity. And teaching and observing all that Jesus has commanded us. And that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. We could take a year right there on all of that. But here for us this morning, go therefore and make disciples. That is the imperative here. That is the command here in all of this. Make disciples. Learners who follow the Lord. Main emphasis, make disciples. Who are disciples? Christians. What do we do with disciples? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that Christ has commanded. Where is this accomplished? In the context of the local church. Keep in mind, two ordinances, Lord's Supper, baptism. Part of making disciples is baptizing these disciples. D.A. Carson, he opines that the New Testament can scarcely conceive of a disciple who is not baptized or who is not instructed. So if we take Carson's statement, which I wholeheartedly agree with, when we encounter people who say they are Christians... And have been Christians for how many years and so? And they're not being instructed in a local church. They're not members of a local church. They've never been baptized. It should cause red flags immediately. Lights should turn on. Bells and whistles go off. There's a problem. It's inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. Disciples, according to Jesus, are those who hear understand and obey him in his teaching. We see that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50. I'll just read it for you. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and mother. So obedience is obligatory. So we follow the train. The word of God preached. Someone gets gloriously converted. They are now born again. Then they get discipled. And part of that discipleship, the entrance into that discipleship, is water baptism. They are taught and they grow. All in the context, membership of a local church. And then we see the evidences of, in the New Testament, for believers' baptism. 
The evidence is in the New Testament for believers' baptism. Again, our text this morning, Matthew 28, as I look for my post-it note, and there it is. You should see my desk at home. I clean up every week, every Monday. A few things I clean up, and one of them is my desk. I heard some of you, other of you, have post-it notes as well, so I'm in good company. The mandate of believer's baptism was the first point. The mandate, Jesus mandated it. Uh, in the Great Commission, we, we find it, Matthew 28. And then the evidence of believer's baptism. Now we're going to look at some scriptures we're going to go through. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 3 first, and then we're going to go through Acts. And uh, there may be a, other, uh, a couple other texts that we're going to go through as well. <clears throat> Sam Waldron, uh, probably one of the best, if not the best, living uh, Reformed Baptist theologian and scholar, says this. As far as the Great Commission, Jesus commands here that baptism be preceded by discipleship and succeeded by thorough instruction in how to observe all that Christ commands. Disciples are made by the preaching of the Word of God and then baptized. Not the other way around. We see this, we see the preaching of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. Let's find that in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice the message he preached. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they were doing what? As they were confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father? I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So we see the baptism, uh, the preaching of repentance, as they were confessing their sins, as they were repenting. Then they were being baptized. And we see as John the Baptist pointing towards the Messiah. And let's see what Jesus says in John chapter 4. And then we'll go to Acts chapter 2. Briefly looking at John chapter 4 and then Acts chapter 2. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Jesus' disciples were baptizing disciples. Who are the ones being baptized? Disciples. Who are the disciples? The followers of Jesus Christ. Go to Acts chapter 2. Verse 
By the way, two families uh, donated a couple of boxes, a few boxes of pew Bibles, NASB, large print, and uh, you'll find some throughout the the sanctuary, but we haven't put them all out there yet. But um, if you don't have a Bible and you you would like to see uh, the NASB as the translation I use, those you'll find in the weeks to come right in front of you in some parts of the sanctuary. But I encourage you to have a Bible as I hear the pages turning. It's a wonderful noise to hear as you're preaching, as you're asking uh, the congregation to turn here and turn there. You're following along. It's a wonderful thing. Acts chapter 2. Remember, this is after Pentecost. Peter stands up, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and he preaches a message, and there is a huge response to his preaching. We're going to be looking at verse 37. But he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's going right at them, right at their hearts. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? That's a good question they ask, a genuine question. Well, what shall we do then? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Not the promises for you and your children. See, that... If you say it that way, it sounds like, okay, the promise of baptism is for, for, for you and your children. No, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many, here are they, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Those are the ones who are to be baptized. Those are the ones, those are the ones who repent and then are baptized. Baptism was so close to conversion as far as time-wise. It was right there. We see that here in the text. There was no months and years to wait. It was right then, right after conversion, right after repentance. Verse 40, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Imagine being a part of that. God's sovereign work there. The promises for all, for all who would turn to Christ, for all who would repent of their sins. And who was baptized? Those who received his word. Those who received his word, received uh, the message of Christ, understood the cost, followed him. Then what? Baptism. Acts chapter 8. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Philip in Samaria, verse 12. <clears throat> Acts 
But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, when they believed, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Adults, men and women were being baptized. So we see two uh, examples there in the book of Acts. Let's go, we're in in chapter 8, let's go to verse 36 as well. Verse and through 38. And they went along the road and came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And then we have in the brackets there, Philip said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So we consider just a few texts that we've looked at this morning. We see uh, with John the Baptist in Matthew, we see what Jesus said about his disciples baptizing disciples. In John chapter 4, we see uh, in Acts chapter 2 what Peter said to those who were converted, those who said, what must we do now? And then in Acts chapter 8, when they believed, They were baptized. So for the actual act of baptism, what does it mean for the individual, for the church, and for the world? So we have the mandate of believer's baptism from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have evidence of believer's baptism, which we just scratched the surface of here in the New Testament. And then the meaning of believer's baptism. What does it mean for the individual, the church, and to the world? Well, we're going to be going to several more scriptures, but let me first read to you from the Confession of Faith in chapter 29, which says this, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted unto him of remission of sins, and thirdly, of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in the newness of life. So let's Look at these three reasons from the confession, and we'll go to Ephesians 4, and then we'll go to Romans chapter 6. But it's a sign of fellowship with Christ. What is water baptism? It is a sign that one has union with Christ. And Ephesians chapter 4 We'll find here in verse 1 through 6, we'll notice seven uh, realities we as Christians have in common. Seven realities we as Christians have in common. In chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One baptism, all believers are to be baptized. It is the assumption of the Apostle Paul that believers in Jesus Christ are baptized. 
And I'll read this for you. No need to turn there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So all believers are clothed with, with Jesus Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. That's the main point of the verse, is that we are clothed with his righteousness. But these are also people who have been baptized because they are Christians. Now let's go to Romans, and we're going to stop here for probably the remainder of our time. Well, actually Colossians 2 as well, but go to Romans 6. A scripture that we've referenced, we have looked at recently. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? We do not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So we as Christians are dead to sin. Sin is no longer the master unto whom we serve. We died to sin. All true Christians sharing this have died to sin. We would not say only some Christians have died to sin, for that would contradict the text. Those who are baptized have died with Christ. All Christians have died with Christ. Now, I'll summarize this, but let me reference Tom Schreiner as he offers the following help, especially when some would try to separate a spiritual baptism from water baptism. He says this, There was not a serious problem as there is today with Christians being unbaptized in the New Testament period. He says this, Recall that in Paul's day, virtually all were baptized immediately after putting their faith in Christ. You ever watch the videos of those in a a closed country Maybe it's um, areas where there's a lot of snow and they have to cut a hole to baptize people. Maybe it's in a Muslim country and they're out in the woods somewhere and there's only a few people and the person is getting baptized. It costs them something. Everyone knows what that person is doing there when they are getting baptized. This person has decided to follow Jesus Christ. No turning back. No turning back. It can mean death to that person from there. A de- death as far as I'll never talk to you again in other countries, in other false religions. It could mean death to them physically. What does it cost us here? 
When someone would say, oh, I want to be water baptized, but we're just going to take a few of us over there because we saw, it, we saw this on a video. Well, they have a reason for doing that. We should be knocking on the door of this church, of my door there. Believers saying, I want to be baptized. I see it in the New Testament. I want to obey the Lord in this. When a believer is baptized, he or she is identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I have died to sin. I have died in Christ. Reminder of Christ's passive obedience and active obedience of his humiliation and exaltation. Reminder of his death, identifying with sinners, of his resurrection as he resurrects us to new life in him. We have new life now. And we will have eternal life, ultimately, in glorification. And then there's Colossians chapter 2. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then one other verse, but you don't have to turn there. From Acts chapter 22. I've had you turn to a lot of scriptures, so I'll just read this for you this morning. You could read it again later. It's Paul and given his account, the account of his conversion. So again, the three reasons that the confession gives us. A sign of our fellowship with Christ, union with Christ. That's why baptism. That's why we do this. Secondly, of being grafted unto him, of remission of sins. Paul says, or the scripture says here in chapter 22 of Acts, verse 12 through 16, a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men, what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Repentance and receiving forgiveness was so closely associated with the outward act of baptism. Repent, believe, and be baptized. Baptism with water symbolizes this forgiveness. There's nothing in the water contrary to what Miss Underwood would sing. There's really nothing in the water that is special. Third, of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in the newness of life. And we saw that in Romans 6.4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism unto death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. It is a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So questions for us. So what does baptism say to and about the individual being baptized? What does it say to the church? And what does it say to the world? Well, to the individual, it says, I am, I am identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I am in union with him. I am forgiven by him and I have a cleansed heart. I am I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus Christ and he ordained that each of his disciples get baptized. And I want to obey him in this. To the church, to the local church, to the elders, it says this. It says, I'm willing to be interviewed by you. And I understand that you're called to shepherd over me. I am a believer and I want to be baptized and I want to join the church. To the members, it says, this is not a private thing for me. Baptism is a public expression of me following after Jesus Christ. I want you all to rejoice with me in this. As we do this, as a, what Christ instituted within the local church. Won't you join me, with me in this, and rejoice with me as I get baptized? To the world, it says, come what may, I follow Jesus Christ. And here is proof that this is the real deal. I know I've, my whole life I've said other things, and I've done other things, and you're saying, yeah, this is just another fad. No. Come and see that this is the real deal. I am following what the Lord says in baptism. Water baptism distinguishes believers in Christ from non-believers. It should. It further proclaims the radical nature of conversion. And what, what it says to the individual, what it says to the church, and what it says to the world as the individual would proclaim this to all three... An infant cannot do this, as a side note. So who is to be baptized? London Baptist, again, Confession of Faith, chapter 29. Those who personally profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So infants, therefore, are not to be baptized. The person should be from the perspective of the local church that they are seeking to be a part of. The person should be from the perspective of members and, and the elders. One who has a consistent, observable walk following Jesus Christ. Because they have repented and put their faith and trust in the Lord. And, and other members of the church can see this. The elders can see this. It is observable. It's very difficult to obtain such evidence in three Sundays a month. Even four Sundays a month. An hour here, an hour there. Sometimes significant time is needed to disciple someone and to observe their profession of faith before baptism. Also, the... The person must be a candidate for membership, at least moving in that direction. Church membership is biblical. We believe the text teaches it. We hold to it here as elders. Adults who want to be baptized are adults who want to be members of a local church. Again, F.F. Bruce says the idea of an unbaptized believer is not even entertained in the New Testament. It is a, a, a right or a, an initiation, not right, R-I-G-H-T, but right, R-I-T-E, better word, a, a initiation, that's not a good word, is an entranceway, so to speak, to, 
to put it in more in layman's terms for us, to the local church as well. So the questions for us. First, have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, his son? That's first and foremost that everyone has to come to, to grips with. Everyone has to bow the knee to Christ. You will bow the knee to Christ in this life or you'll be forced to in the life to come as he you face Christ as a just judge if you do not bow to him now as, a, as Savior and Lord. Now I know some here have, you've believed in Christ, trusted in his finished work. Ask that question as well. Have you done this? Have you believed in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ now? I had a conversation with someone recently. He says, I don't know when I was saved back in the day. I, I can't remember when it was. And I said, well, do you know you're a Christian now? And he said, absolutely. You don't have to know the date and the time. Some of us do. Some of us do not know the date and the hour. And, and we have conversations about this. But where is your heart now before the Lord? We can't go back to yesterday. Today is a day of salvation. Are you trusting in his finished work, his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection? Have you repented of your sins and sought out forgiveness from God? And you say, yes, I have, I have. Have you been baptized? No. Maybe some of you have uh, been taught in a way that baptism wasn't a significant thing. Well, now's the time we can study this out. And it can be a significant thing because it is significant in your, in, as the New Testament teaches. So don't let that be a hindrance or a stumbling block either. Now, as we go to the Lord's table, as we consider the two ordinances of the New Testament church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both are for disciples of Jesus Christ. And a, as I was having a conversation yesterday with uh, my wife, she reminded me of this quote, or this, as we were talking, she says, as she heard from somewhere, you cannot eat at both tables. You cannot eat at the table of the world and at the Lord's table. You're eating from one or the other. And this morning, as we go to the Lord's Supper after I pray, which table are you eating from now? The table of the Lord that he offers or the table of the world and everything that the world offers? If you're eating from the table of the world, communion is not for you. If you do not know the Lord, but if you... Do you not know the Lord? Today is a day of salvation. You can be converted right now. The Lord can work on your heart right now and save your soul. But let it pass if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not been converted. Do not partake of the Lord's table. If you're under church discipline, do not partake of the Lord's table either. We welcome all who are Christians, born again, not under church discipline, Maybe you're visiting from a local church. Uh, You're welcome to partake with us as well. But a reminder for us, we cannot eat at both tables. Let me pray for us. Father, as we consider these texts we have looked at this morning rather quickly, rather briefly, much more could be said, much more could be said better, much better... um, uh, more in-depth could be, uh, could be looked at, Lord. But God, your word is clear. 
it should be clear to us this morning of who ought to be water baptized. Lord, we would pray for those uh, specifically adults that have not been baptized and have no plans to, Lord, we pray that you would indeed work in their hearts. Lord, help them in the understanding of what your word says. And as we transition this morning to uh, the Lord's table, what you have uh, set up for us, let us meditate upon these things we have learned. Let us meditate upon this devotion as we will examine this morning. And we do so as we partake with the Lord's Supper in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen.